We are getting to the end of Abraham's life. I think we get 175 years out of him. Imagine what it'd be like. You know, I'm almost 50 and I'm getting old and cranky and crusty at almost 50. I couldn't imagine at 175 how cynical and crusty a guy could get if it wasn't for a right relationship with the Lord. In Isaiah 46, it says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. As we get older, we get vulnerable. We also live in a culture that does not respect elders, right? We live in a youth-generated, youth-hyped culture that people expire. People expire culturally. They don't see the value of, of silver saints. They don't see the value of wisdom, right? Everybody is looking for the young, fast, hip, right? And, and in this culture, they did value, they did value um, being an elder. But you realize the hero of Abraham's story is it was the Lord, the Lord carried him through his journey. And you know what's fascinating is we don't have an account of Abraham's early life. We pick it up when he's married and he's well into his years, right? We don't know those formative years. And I, you know, I praise God I didn't live in a time where as young men we had camera phones. What happened in the 90s stayed in the 90s. That's all I got to say. You know, <laughs> but there's those formative years, and 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 part of what we're going to notice is the the encouragement to take away is is how we start out is not as important as how we finish as Christians. Men, how many projects do you start? How many do you finish? Right. <laughs> So we're not competing in a sprint as believers. We are running a long-haul, grueling marathon. Speed is not the key. It's endurance. It's steadfastness. Abraham is a long-hauler. He's imperfect at points, but he is a finisher of his race, and he's going to finish well. Proverbs 24, verse 16 tells us, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Paul writes at the end of his ministry in Acts 20, he says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul knows he's not going to win the race. He's just happy to finish the race. If you guys ever competed in any kind of race or marathon or, or whatnot, sometimes the goal is to just get to the end. And there's a lot of, you know, there, there's something to be said. You know, in the dog sled mushing world, they have the red lantern guy, right? The guy who always finishes dead last. But it, even in that, he's venerated because he finished. It takes... It takes a lot of effort to finish because a lot of people could take the easy way out and what? Quit. And Christian, you and I stand before the Lord based on his grace, not by our performance, which then tells us we can't quit. 
You ever notice the Lord doesn't leave you alone and you try to cop out, you try to quantify yourself and say, Lord, I don't meet my own standard for myself, so I can't keep doing the ministry you called me to. He's like, well, that's not for you to do. I've given you a calling, so keep going. Even Jesus tells us in Luke 14, he says, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, with his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So again, you hear the testimony of godly men who finish their, their race well. You hear the story, or I mean, Jesus is exhorting us. He says, look, you need to count the cost. If you're going to be all in with Jesus, it's going to be hard, and it's going to cost you greatly, but it's going to be worth it. Abraham is a great portrait of that. In verse 1, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. boy, He's going to go on and have six more kids, and he's over 100. Bottle that guy's tiger juice, you know what I'm saying? Like, what kind of supplements was he taking? What was in his falafels? And we know God had regenerated him, because earlier on in his narrative, not only was Sarah unable to have kids, but he was unable to have kids. So this guy, this guy had Holy Spirit power going through his veins. Keturah. Keturah means perfumed one. In the book of First Chronicles, it tells us Keturah was actually Abraham's concubine. And so in this, she moves up to legal status as wife simply for estate purposes. And we're going to see that her and her offspring are going to be taken care of. So we have a list of his sons. I'm not even going to try to butcher these names. But take note of these names because they're going to have a future reference. Like, for instance, Midian. Right? We're going to hear about Moses is going to marry a Midianite woman. So he has a slew of, of, of children again. But verse 5 says, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Kids, did your parents have a favorite? You all have it, right? In your family, you know who the favorite is, don't you? There's a favorite brother. You know. You suspect who the favorite brother is. We all had the favorite sibling. Who's the favorite sibling, right? Yeah. I was an only child until <laughs> I was 14. My, my brother's nickname growing up was Princess. It's like he was raised by a different mom. He got away with so much murder. You know, he would rob her purse, and he'd, then she'd take him off to go buy him shoes. Man, if I, told, if I took 10 bucks, 5 bucks, my mom would take me to the woodshed. I mean, I'm like, Mom, how does he get a pass? 
But what we're going to see here is Isaac, being in the line of the Messiah, he's also going to be to us as a type of Christ. Just as God had given everything to Jesus, Abraham is going to give all to Isaac. You know, let's cross-reference. For you guys who want paper cuts, go to John 17, verse 1 through 10. If you really want to know the Lord's Prayer, it's not the Our Father. It's this chapter right here. This is where Jesus prays for his disciples. John 17, verse 1 it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you had given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you had given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you had given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you had given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And they have known surely that I have come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you had given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Here's our application. What if you and I, believer, were to conduct our lives as if we were truly possessed by Christ, and our daily routine was to honor and glorify God? To the Lord, there is no such thing as secular and sacred. It's not like you come to church on Sunday then punch the time clock, and then go back to being the guy who goes to work the next day. But just think of it this way. Think of in your day-to-day routine, your weekly routine, how many people you come in contact with. What if you were to simply pray for all those souls that you come in contact with daily through your normal tent-making routine, right? Realize you're on duty. Realize you're not there just to feed your family and to keep Amazon in business, right? Your, your job there really is to be that ambassador of Christ. And, and, you know, sometimes you don't get a word in edgewise with people. And sometimes you've tried to force it. I've tried to force it. We've tried to contrive all that. And it just doesn't work. People don't want to hear us. But here's the thing. You can pray for them, for God to bless them, to soften their hearts, to open their hearts to eternal life, right? God honors those those prayers. And so he sent you, in a sense, as a forward observer, right? He has sent you ahead to prepare the target to receive the Holy Spirit, to receive eternal life. Or you may even have a more practical blessing in that. Sometimes I walk into those situations and go, what is the, what is the spiritual need of this person? I was, one of my side jobs, I was driving people to doctor's appointments. And so I would sometimes initiate conversations about the Lord, but you get some of these guys who don't want to talk about it. So my car, my radio. So I'll put on my iPhone or I'll put on Christian radio and they have to listen to what I'm listening to. Oh, and you would just see him squirm. I had one guy who's like, can we turn this off? He just didn't want to hear about the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus. 
Is he in eternity yet? I don't know. But if he, he's in eternity, he has the information. But you realize you're there for the purposes of God. Verse 6. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham, Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. See, what we're seeing here is Abraham is getting his house in order while he still has his faculties. He's taking care of important things before he dies to, number one, prevent confusion and disputes amongst his immediate family and heirs. Right? You've seen this, maybe you've experienced this firsthand where someone didn't do proper estate planning and what happens? The kids fight over the junk. Who gets grandma's wedding ring? Right? Who gets their cabbage slicer? Who gets this? Who gets that? And you watch your family degrade because there wasn't a flow chart. There wasn't a plan to, to, to distribute the assets accordingly. It's important, Christian, as you get older, you need to be considerate even after your death for the people that God has called you to, to uh, steward by getting our houses in order. He's ensuring their well-being as well. That's the other thing is you, you have to, as a good steward, entrust your, your stuff and, and your resources appropriately to the family members that can use it appropriately. He may have had littles at this time. We don't know the ages of his children, but he just ensured he took care of them. But one, one thing you're going to find, Christian, there's seven stages in our life. They're all going to rhyme. I found this cute thing in another sermon, so I'm totally ripping off someone else, but it was fun. The first stage in our life are the spills. The second stage in life are the drills. The third stage in life are the thrills. The fourth stage is the bills. The fifth stage is the ills. After that comes the pills, and then finally comes the wills. So as you get closer to the sunset of your life, don't leave a mess for your family. First Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We even read about King Hezekiah where he was sick and near death, and Isaiah had to come to him, and he says, Hey, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Boy, how would you like that for your morning devotions? And what he needed to do with King Hezekiah is prepare the throne for the next guy in succession. His, see, if he would have just been like, I'm going to die and let the Lord take care of it, that would have been irresponsible. He had a succession, he had a throne, he had the kingdom to think about, right? So, so Silver Saint, you got to keep in mind, don't leave a mess for other believers, or your other family, rather, both. Don't leave a mess. Throw out the expired canned goods now, right? See, my mom has cats. She's vowed. She's told us she's going to be the crazy cat lady. And I'm like, well, leave me a 22 <laughs> verse 7 this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived 175 years Woo. then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age and a man full of years and was gathered to his people so how did Abraham die old age 
You know what killed Abraham? Life. <laughs> God retired him. You know, heaven's retirement, if you, if you really believe, there's, there's not something in the Bible where it says you get to a particular age and then you just stop and then you just sit around and watch the uh, leaves change color, right? Watch the bread harden. You keep moving. Abraham lived a full, blessed life. He, I believe he what, lived 38 years after Sarah died. Not only that, he left a legacy. Yet he owned nothing except what? His burial plot. He left us a legacy of faith. He was called the friend of God. See, Christian, if all we ever leave our family is stuff, then we've truly failed. You want to leave them a legacy of walking by faith. Show them how it's done. I was at a pastor's conference once outside of our affiliation, and, and the, the lead pastor speaking says, Men, your wife's greatest need is financial stability. I'm like, well, she married the wrong guy then. <laughs> but that's not scriptural. That's good practical sound advice. Yeah, men, you need to work and provide. But really in that, I needed to give my wife a life of faith. We needed to take healthy, calculated risks for the Lord and watch the Lord show up and provide. But what we see in hindsight in Abraham's life is, is, is talked about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask to think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, Abraham was a father, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. He was blessed spiritually. And our encouragement to take away from that is God uses old people. Okay? Sometimes he doesn't use people till they're old. Some people age like fine milk. Christians, we should age like fine wine. But I believe... I tell myself this, my good, old days, excuse, my good old days are yet to come. I'm looking forward to what God is going to do with me and in me and through me than what he's already done, and I've had a blessed life. But I just trust that God will continue to use me as such. And we have examples, right? We have Caleb, we have Moses, we have a little old guy in the New Testament named Simeon. Even Anna, they waited to see the Messiah into the ripe old age. Abraham had this full life. See, Christian, we're like sharks. What happens to a shark when they stop moving? They die. Heaven's our retirement. You know, right now, the U.S. population, 12% of it is over 65. That's a large percentage. God can use that. Let's talk a little bit about Caleb. I like Caleb's attitude. Joshua 14 gives us a story. Verse 6, it says, Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God concerning you, and me and Kadesh Barnea? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. 
Nevertheless, my brethren, whom went up with me, made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly follow the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land which your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am this day, 85 years old. And yet I am, as he, strong this day, as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then. So now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day, for you have heard that in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Eighty-five years. And he's still going to go climb mountains and kill giants. That's encouraging. You're not done till the Lord says you're done. You know, I look at just men that God has used throughout history. And, and, you know, Chuck Smith being a focal point, Chuck did not enter his ministry with Calvary Chapel until he was well into his late 40s. He considered himself a failure. He He was an itinerant preacher that went to a community for two and a half years or so. He only had two to two and a half years material. He wasn't a very solid Bible teacher, and so when he'd expire his material, he would move on. And so as he felt the Lord lead him to Santa Ana, California, to Costa Mesa area, that he inherited just this little tiny country church called Calvary Chapel, and there were 25 people there. My pastors met all 100 people that were there in that 25-man group. (laughs) But at that time, it was the late 60s. Some of you guys were there, right? Remember the late 60s? If you did, you really weren't there. But the idea there was there was a lot of kids, a lot of drugs, a lot of burnouts. And so you've seen the movie. If you've seen the movie, what is it, Jesus People or Jesus Generation? What is it called? Jesus Revolution, excuse me. Bad, bad pastor. But Chuck and Kay would sit and watch all these hippie kids walk past their house daily going to the beach. And they were recognizing they were lost. And the Lord says, what are you going to do about it? Chuck was a bit prejudiced. Chuck, Chuck did not like that group. Chuck has never taken an aspirin. And so Chuck then would start teaching, and these hippie kids would show up because his teenage sons and daughters were hanging out in that crowd, and those, those kids would come to church, and he'd watch them in the morning, Sundays. They'd sit on the retaining wall across the street, and they would drink out of their wineskins and smoke a joint, right? And he was just like... And they were barefoot. Everything Chuck, was he's just so straight-laced. And the Lord says, will you simply teach them the Bible? In, in Chuck's indictment to himself, he says, Lord, I don't know the Bible. And the Lord just gave him a pattern. Just start, just teach them simply. Because those kids did not have access to the modern denominations. They were off-scour to the church. The church didn't want anything to do with them. So Chuck, having to confront his prejudice, agreed to what God wanted to do, and God used him in the Jesus movement, right? He wasn't the catalyst, but he certainly was able to participate, and he would have missed out if he would have given in to his personal preferences, but he was, he was at a point where he realized he just had to almost get to the end of himself. And God takes time to develop his vessel. 
Moses. Moses wandered in the desert for 40 years before he took the children of Israel through the desert for 40 years. God was preparing him. There's an old English proverb. It says, the older the fiddle, the sweeter the sound. But believer, all men expire. Right? We all have a shelf life. Paul writes to us, he says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this we groan. You, you understand this. If you're over 40, you groan. You know, it hurts to wake up, right? Even if you're in shape, you're just, you know, your body just realizes you've misused it in your 20s. But we groan. But we're earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he has prepared for us this very thing. Now he, excuse me. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident in knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So Abraham, 175 years, is now, I'm sure there's an eager anticipation for him, probably at 175, to be with his Lord and his Savior, more so than when he was a young man, right? There's so many competing things for our interest at an early age that by the time you get old, and those, those creaks and those moans and those groans actually get you to anticipate heaven, Right? When you're vulnerable, you're like, man, I just want to be with Jesus. So there was some focus. There was some clarity. He was real eager to be with his, his lover of his soul. So ask yourself this question today. Does your relationship with God make you sure that you'll go to heaven when you die? See, as a young man, I disregarded that question. Ah, I'll wait till I'm on my deathbed to do that. Well, it doesn't take much to go through the front windshield of your car in an accident and die. You don't know, right? You know, there's recordings of people in airplanes that are about to crash, or 9-11, they've recorded all the cell phone chatter. There wasn't people giving their life radically to Jesus in a time of crisis. Several years ago, there was a... There was a uh, missile scare in Hawaii. You guys remember that? And, of course, the government said it was just a drill. But the people of Hawaii were like, that wasn't a drill. You know what that residents of Hawaii did while they had a half hour till that missile were to have landed and destroyed Hawaii? They filled the bars and the beaches. They just were going to wait to die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. And... If you don't make that decision now, you don't know the day, the time, or the hour. You don't know when you're going to make that decision or have that opportunity to make that decision again. Are you anticipating heaven? Are you anticipating eternity with Jesus? Are you anticipating 
that things are going to be better after this because I also understand that if you don't make that decision now, see, God won't make it for you. He won't send you to hell or he won't send you to heaven. He allows you to make that decision. But today is the day of salvation. You need that assurance. Because once you cross into eternity, it's too late. I believe everybody who's in hell honestly wants to be in hell. You know why? They don't want anything to do with God. People love the darkness, right? There's no one in hell going, I was tricked, I was duped. No. They had such a hatred towards God that they wanted nothing to do with him. And God honors that. If you don't want to be in my presence, then I will honor that for eternity. Some people just think, oh, I want to go to hell because all my friends will be there. Hey, you're going to be there alone. Everyone will be there together alone, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell's not a place created for people. It was created for Satan and the fallen angels. But the nature of God is God is a judge. And God has to judge sin. Right? We were born into sin. We were born separated. God has to judge for his justice sake. But also in that, God has a heart of the Father, and he's always wanted to have a relationship with his creation, but that sin was a barrier. It has separated us from God. And so God, because he's a loving Father, realized I need to bring these people to me, but they're not going to listen to me. What if God were to just open the heavens and be like, Hey, give your life to me! right? It's like those fainting goats. You ever see them things, right? They hear a loud noise and they just fall over. I mean, I think that's a lot like us. Like if God were to just like scream at us in his love, he would freak us out. But God had to put on the earth suit, go through what you and I experience, experience the human condition. And he subjected himself to the worst man could give. You ever think about God went through the very worst in order to give you the very best. He did nothing wrong. And he had his beard plucked out. He did nothing wrong. They nailed him to a tree. Why? Because men hate God. But don't wait till later in life because your, hard, your hardness of your heart will keep you from receiving the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Verse 11. Is that where we're at? Nope. Verse 9. And his son, or sons rather, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, and the son of Zoar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife. You know, funerals tend to be family reunions. Sometimes those family reunions are awkward because of the unresolved personal conflicts within the family members. You ever been to those families? Right? In my, my family, what's the difference between, what, what did we say? What's the difference between an Irish funeral and an Irish, Irish wedding? One less drunk. <laughs> I'm Irish, so I can say those jokes. But I've been to those funerals where it's just been uncomfortable because there's been so much unresolved conflict. But don't wait to the funeral to get things right with friends and family. 
And we see here Isaac and Ishmael are getting along, at least through the rest of this particular narrative. Verse 11 says, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael. Now we're not going to get too far into this. This has its own application and study, but for the sake of time, we weren't going into this. And for those of you guys who like to study Islam, this has some bearing in that. This is where they take their genealogies from, claiming direct descendant from Abraham. But they believe that the child of promise actually was Ishmael rather than Isaac, but we see that's not true. I mean, as, as you look at those genealogies in the Bible, there's a lot of them, and they're short, and they kind of seem to go nowhere. But the one genealogy that we have that's complete throughout the entire narrative is whose? Jesus, right? You see it all the way back in Genesis 5. You see it in Matthew. You see it in Luke. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. It's interesting. When I've, I've gone to Israel, I have friends over there, Israeli friends, and so I gave them our Hebrew study Bibles, and the first thing my one friend looked at was the genealogy of Matthew because he says, is Jesus descended from David? I'm like, wow, I didn't prepare for that. You know, I had Isaiah 53 outlined. I had Ezekiel 38. He's like, I just need to see for myself that Jesus is the descendant of David. To the Jew, that's important. They're big about genealogies, right? Verse 16, these were the sons of the Ishmael, and they were their names, and by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham begot Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now just as his mother Sarah was barren, you know, to be barren in this culture was considered to be a curse. And to be barren in light of the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants, right? You go back to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant that he was going to be a father of many nations. I believe something triggered Isaac to do what every godly man should do in a situation when it comes to something as, from a woman's perspective, is, is a heavy burden to bear. And he need to uh, take matters into his rightful leadership position and go before the Lord and seek the Lord regarding something as what we would call family planning today. He had to pray on behalf of his wife. He was being what's called a proper covering. You know, God puts problems in our lives only he can solve. I, I've been in this dilemma, right? We, we've been married you know, I'll just use our story as we were married and uh, we just could not have kids. 
And so my wife's like, well, let's go to the doctors. Let's go talk. Let's just, for my own peace of mind, just confirm what the issue is. She kind of was going, well, what's, is it me? You know, what's, and she was getting mad at me. Like, why can't you get me pregnant? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the reality is to say, <laughs> we've done everything on our end to <laughs> help God out. But, you know, I, I, I had to come to a point where, and I was being selfish. The, the term dink, dual income, no children. I was in my 40s going, man, I got more money and more stuff for me, you know. And my wife was just begging me, like, why isn't this important to you? Well, it wasn't that it wasn't unimportant. It was just I came to terms with it. But I remember early on when, when I started walking with the Lord, I was going through my intern program at church, and, and one of the uh, exercises in the intern program was to ask the Lord to show you the ministries he wants to do in you and through you. And at the time... The Lord showed me that I was going to be an adopting parent, right? And so in that, I just knew that at some point we'd have to come to it. But we were getting, you know, we were married for 15 years at that point. And my wife's like, hey, you know what? We're not spring chickens. I mean, you ever feel like as you get older, you're still like 20, right? You know, you just, you're still, I think you kind of stay the same age, the age you get saved. And so... You know what I'm talking about? You still have a youthful appeal, but after a while, you're like, oh, I'm a little creaky. You know, you're the tin man. So I went on behalf of, you know, my wife to the Lord in this, and I had to validate her and acknowledge her concern. But I think the Lord was getting into my heart a little bit, going, this is the season in which we're going to um, make you guys parents. And so we went through some of the channels that were, available to us but every one of those doors kept shutting down until the longest hardest possible way to be an adoptive parent came and that's private open adoption right we're like great if it's the hard way to go it's got to be jesus and so as we've stepped out and i i told my wife my wife was going through a season where she was envious of what god was doing in me and through me and other areas and she's like why doesn't God bless me? He seems to give you what you want. And I said, well, dear, you know what? My exhortation, which it bought me three days of silence. I, I said, you need to walk with Jesus too. Oh, did I get the stink eye? Three days. And at that third day, she comes back to me and she goes, you're right. I said, you need to pray too. So let's pray, you know. I had to lead her in, you know, what she knew was true, but the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And so the Lord then was like, okay, here's the plan, you know. And I just, I agreed. I said, this is your faith walk. I need you to walk out in this. I said, I'll just cover you, and I will also uh, write every check we need. Whatever you need, we'll take care of it. And we just watched the Lord just bless us abundantly, you know, adoption was such a time-consuming process, and a lot of money had to be, you know, come up with in a short term. But we really saw the Lord provide. You know, we at one point we had to the baby shows up, and we were still eight thousand dollars away from completing the process. So we, by faith, ran a GoFundMe. Everybody said, "Run a GoFundMe." Fourteen days we raised eight thousand dollars. So I went and bought a Harley. And we waited for another, no, no. <laughs> it's a Pat Robertson move. 
we're going to build a children's hospital, but wait, the condo comes first. <laughs> um, we just watched the Lord supernaturally just do what he needed to do. But we believe God was leading us, and that wasn't a one and done, that there were going to be other children coming along. And so for the second story, you know, we, we entered into the next contract for the next kid, but then the pandemic hits, and we're like, the world has shut down. There are no state agencies. We couldn't get background checks. We couldn't get any, any courts to handle this. But the, the overseeing adoption agent's like, guess what happens when you lock up people for several years with nothing to do? Babies happen. And her list blew up. She had 10 other families that all had children. And, but I had work to do. Right? We, had to, we had to remodel a room, things like that, get things prepared for baby. And the Lord told me, baby's coming in winter. Which means I didn't have to wait. I didn't have to finish working on the room till December. That was my take from it. I'm like, oh, good, I can just slack. And that was the running joke. Everyone was saying, "Well, once you finish that bedroom, the baby will show up." I'm like, right. Not only that, but the Lord then gave me Matthew's name. He says his name is going to be Matthew. Of course, he's going to be a boy. And so as things transpired, and we were in the 11th hour, 59th minute, and and so all that came to be. Because Michelle's like, where's the baby? Where's the baby? I'm like, it's not winter yet. And we got acquainted with the birth mother in late December, early January. And she's like, I want you to have, have my baby. And I just was like, see? And, you know, the joke was, what did God tell you he's going to be? A boy? And then she goes, oh, he's going to be a boy. See? You know? And so, you know, I let my... I let the Lord name my kids. Both my kids are named by God. So, it, it, you know, it's, God honors that. Psalm 127, you guys probably have this written on your refrigerator somewhere. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. I'm sure... Some of you guys come from a denomination that mishandles this verse a lot, right? But think of children as arrows. You ever build an arrow? Very hard to do. It takes a lot of skill. You have to balance. You have to calibrate. You have to calculate. Same like children. You just can't have children for the sake of children. God has entrusted their lives into your life as a steward to raise them up for God's purposes. Where are we at time? But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So we have both dad inquiring of God. And then you have mom inquiring of God. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's a prophecy here. We're going to see Esau is going to be the rough and tumble man in the field. He's going to be the hunter. He's going to be the stronger. But he's also a little dense. Yeah, mama's boy, the softy. God's going to turn his affection and his attention towards the younger, who is going to inherit the lineage of the Messiah. We're going to see the focus will shift to the younger of the two named Jacob. 
Verse 24 said, So when her day, days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. I mean, you ever see a baby born with a full head of hair? It's kind of cute. It's kind of adorable. They look like a, a troll, right? The little You look for the jewel in the belly button. They're, they're, they can be adorable. Imagine you, the first one out of the chute looks like a Wookiee. And, of course, you know, they prayed and fasted, and they're like, let's just call him Esau, which means what? Red. So, like, here you are holding Elmo. <laughs> uh, thanks. But afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Isaac has two boys now. Oh, proud papa, little hairball. Then you got Jacob. Jacob, his name means heel snatcher. You know what that means? It's a, it's a euphemism. It means this guy's going to be a tricky, no good, rotten liar manipulator. Right? Anyone have one of them? Remember Eddie Haskell from, from Leave it to Beaver in the Wayback Machine? Remember, you know, nice necklace you have on today, Mrs. Cleaver, right? He was always smooch butt. You know, he was always trying to, you know, but behind scenes, he was always the real kind of coarse, joking guy. You know, there's, there's the guy here. The, this guy is going to try by hook and by crook to manipulate the will of God throughout his life. And we're going to go through that in further chapters. But this was not a compliment, right? Dads, you have nicknames for your kids? You just know one's the more trickier one out of the two, you know? Or there's different nicknames for different stages. Right now, Matthew's nickname is Whiny Butt. He just whines to whine, you know? And they just look at him and go, why are you whining? And then he'll just throw himself on the floor. And then he, I realize he's manipulated me because then to quell the tantrum, I'll open up like Coco Melon or something on YouTube. And he's like, no tears. It was just all a facade to get what he wanted from me, right? And I'm like, oh, I just got tricked. Kids, they're just like us. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Right. Nancy boy, mama's boy. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? <laughs> Jacob, you little crook. See, Jacob knew. He knew Esau had no concern to be an inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. He had no concern for the things of God. Had no things, he had no concern for the things of his dad. He just wanted to be out in the woods hunting, fishing, right? You know any people like that, Right? This guy was governed by his appetites, right? He's willing to trade what was rightfully his by law. That's the law of primogeniture, which means the firstborn gets everything. And Jacob goes, hey, I'll, I'll trade you this microwave pizza for that. He's like, I'm dying. 
I need some food. He was so governed by his appetite, he was willing to forsake what was rightfully his in order to satisfy his appetite. And before we beat on him, isn't that the way we were before Christ? Isn't that the way we are sometimes in Christ, where we want to be governed by our appetite? We don't want God to govern us. We want to be governed by what makes our belly full, what makes us feel good, what makes our flesh tingle, what satisfies our pleasure. And we forsake what God has intended, eternal life, everlasting life, right? He's, he's given us these birthrights, and we go, nah, we become lovers of this world. That's a real danger. The love of the world is far more dangerous than Satan some days, because Satan will give you everything you want to keep you away from God. You ever inventory your life? I, I was thinking about this this week, going... What would be my price? If Satan, if Satan could take me out, what would be the very thing he would take me out with? What would be my 30 pieces of silver for Christ? See, I had a, another pastor talking about that, and he says, now make note of that, because that's exactly how Satan is going to come into your life. If you know yourself and you know your weaknesses, that's what he's going to do to get you out. Be on guard for that. Don't let your appetites govern you. Don't let the love of the world govern you. We're going to see that Esau is going, we're going to cover this next week, but he's called in the book of Hebrews a fornicator of a man. It's not speaking of sexual immorality. It's speaking of spiritual immorality, right? He was a spiritual fornicator. But what we take away from this is don't judge by appearances, See, you and I would not pick the people God would pick to do his will. Let's look at the story of David at the end of this narrative here, where Samuel was called by God to go to Bethlehem and to go look up this family of Jesse, and he says, I want you to go consecrate the next king of Israel. And he's like, well, what about Saul? Saul's going to try to kill me. He says, no, 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 go down there and... Go take a look at his boys. They take the firstborn. He's going, ah, oh, look at this healthy specimen of manhood. God says, or rather, Samuel goes, no, that's not him. See, what God tells Samuel, he says, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So eventually they go through all the boys. Then he's like, hey, do you got any more kids? They're like, oh, yeah, the sheep keeper. Yeah, you know, this kid. I, I, I imagine the scruff ball that little David looked like. You know, you ever see the kid who's just like the ragamuffin, the feral child of, of the housing complex where he smells like, like sweat and Kool-Aid and he's just got dirt caked all over. And like this kid comes in and says he's a ruddy young lad. Bright eyes, good looking. And then the Lord goes, arise, anoint him for this is the one. Samuel took his horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Imagine his brothers are like, really? Him? 
We need to be careful. You know, years ago in Calvary Chapel, the joke was, how do you spot a Calvary Chapel pastor? It's the guy in the room that looks like he just got out of jail. Now it's the guy with skinny jeans and the $400 flannel, right, and the groomed beard, right? You know what I'm talking about, Allison, where you're like, yeah, we've come a long way. But this is an encouragement to us, Christian, because I wouldn't pick me to do what God has picked me to do. That's precisely why he's picking me. I'm the least qualified. 1 Corinthians says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. See, you and I, Christian, are raw material. And you know, if God were to use perfect specimens of humanity, then you could draw attention to the specimen going, oh, he started with good stock. You ever used to watch a TV show? I don't know if you guys remember PBS, but there was what was called the New Yankee Workshop. And what it was, was a giant tool commercial. And you had a guy, I believe his name was Norm Abrams. Norm, he's like, well, you can create this kitchen set out of wood. What you do is you put the log in one end of the machine, and out comes the fully furnished, completed project on the other end. Oh, this machine's only $20,000. You guys should buy one. Well, that's all good, and that's all fine when you've got all the right tools, but who's going to go spend 20 grand in tools to produce a $1,000 table? The glory went to the tool. Now, there's another show that used to be on PBS, and it was called The Woodwright Shop by this guy named Roy Underhill. Right? He looked like a shoeshine boy from the 30s. And he was down in Kentucky, and he wanted to demonstrate Amish furniture building skills and like old world techniques. And this guy, he'd go out and cut down a tree, he would go and build the saw, he would go and build the water wheel, he would go and, he, with just simple, simple rudimentary tools and some, some phenomenal know-how, he could create something literally out of nothing. So, to me, who was the more skilled guy? The button pusher on the $20,000 machine? Or the guy who had a rollaway of chisels, a hammer, and rudimentary knowledge of building this stuff well obviously it's the guy who can build something out of nothing and that's what christ does with us he finds us and goes oh oh oh, look at this hot dumpster fire i'm gonna work with look at this total train wreck human life i have found and watch how i'm gonna be glorified because only i have the ability to do what i'm gonna do with that person maybe you've been tired of self-help maybe you've been tired of just trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps And that's not what Christ is telling us to do. He says, simply submit your life to me and let me do what I want to do. I want to predestine you to the image of me. I want to create in you me. And it's not done through imitation. It's done through the power of the Spirit. It's it's transformative. But it's by faith. It's scary when God says, give me your life. Oh, by the way, it's going to be real hard. 
Oh, and it's going to be really uncomfortable. Yeah, but I looked at my life when the Lord gave me that call going, my life's really uncomfortable. It's really hard now. I had to come to terms. What's harder, walking with Jesus or not walking with Jesus? Right? And really, the only thing harder than walking with Jesus is what? Not walking with Jesus. You're like, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I suffered wounds that were self-inflicted. Now, you know, I'm going to have the, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, forge me. Right? He's going to temper me. He's going to create in me his image. And that's what the Lord wants to do with you and I today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless your word. We bless your word into our hearts. Continue to do that work all the way up to old age. Lord, we thank you for never giving up on us and simply allowing us to be used as, as you see fit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.